It's fall in the south, the most beautiful time of the year. And this is Rick Jones, captain of Fishbait Marketing, and your host coming to you from the bridge. Today is all about client service, the key to continued relationships with companies and people. Our guest angler is actually a client of mine, Dan Keats, head of sponsorship at Allstate. And we'll have a Tuesday tip and another segment of On the Road with Rick. So let's jump right in. The water's fine. We've spent the last few months now talking about selling sponsorships, and now you have worked and worked and worked some more, and you finally have an agreement signed. So it's time to rest on your laurels? Of course not. It's now time to service the sponsorship. Even if someone else is assigned to servicing the sponsorship, the responsibility still falls on you, the salesperson. You can delegate everything except responsibility because the buck stops with the salesperson. Years ago, there was a very famous uh, comedian named Flip Wilson, and he played a character on television called Geraldine. He actually was a cross-dresser in that era. And he had a great statement as Geraldine. Geraldine would often say, don't let your mouth write a check your body can't cash. Well, that's the truth in sponsorship. You now have an agreement, and you've got to deliver on every aspect of that agreement. Now, I know this. It's not the bear in the woods that gets you. It's the mosquitoes. It's all of the little things that you're going to need to do to make sure that you fulfill the sponsorship agreement on behalf of the folks you've sold it to. And to do that, I think you've got to provide exceptional customer services. And you start with that, I think, by caring more. You simply are making it a priority to make sure that they understand that you're going to be there every step of the way in order to deliver value. And one way you do that is under-promise and over-deliver. Now, how do you over-deliver? You give them stuff they haven't expected. You don't say, oh, that's not in the contract. We're not going to do that. No, 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 no. You're trying to make sure that you're able to deliver anything and everything that they possibly can need. And to do that, you need to communicate and communicate and communicate and maybe even communicate a little bit more. You should also ask for and get their feedback. You know, I've seen salespeople that they, they sell something, they sell a two-year deal, they go away, and two years later they come back and try to renew. That's crazy because you have no idea about the journey they've been on. And so I want to get feedback on an ongoing basis. How's it going? What surprised you? What things have happened that you might want to take advantage of you didn't know about? What things did you thought you would need and you find out you don't need them at all? Ask for and get constant feedback. I also like to take sponsors an exclusive limited time offer to sponsor maybe new assets or even new events. Give them the first right of refusal on things that are new. There's the very famous story of Chuck Fruit when he was at Anheuser-Busch. Early in the days of ESPN, he took a leap of faith. 
He wasn't sure anybody was going to watch a 24-hour sports network, but he knew if they did, there were going to be a lot of beer drinkers, a lot of people that were interested in sport. And so he doubled down, and he agreed to spend a significant amount of money with the new ESPN network on behalf of Anheuser-Busch. But he had a little caveat in there. As part of his agreement, he got first look at any other programming that ESPN was going to broadcast. And he could make a decision about whether he wanted one of his brands, Budweiser, Bud Light, or others to be a part of that broadcast. Very, very smart guy, a very, very smart contract. I also think as part of the uh, service, you need to agree to the objectives up front and in writing. And I not only do that, I like to do that with timelines. We're going to deliver this by this. You're going to have this approved by this. And so you begin to establish a criteria for not only the timelines, but how are you going to measure against objectives? What are your KPIs to make sure that everything is working extremely well? For those listening that don't know what a KPI is, it's actually short for Key Performance Indicator. A Key Performance Indicator, or KPI, is a tool by which companies measure the success of their businesses. These indicators are clearly defined and must be measurable in order to identify changes in results. The KPIs used by one organization may not be appropriate for another company, but you have to have KPIs to be successful. And then I think you need to begin to develop a system where you get the credit for helping them reach those KPIs. I want to remind the property that the salesperson is the one who got this done. I want to remind the corporate sponsor that you're the guy navigating through that. Because I tell you what, everyone knows who the father of sponsorship is, but they quickly forget who the mother was. Now, in my system, I like to do monthly updates versus that standard at the end of the event or contract. I also like to regularly, probably quarterly, have planning sessions together, especially in that first year of a multi-year agreement. I'm also big on constantly tweaking the master activation plan. That thing is a living, breathing document. That's not something that's set in stone. In fact, nothing's set in stone. It is very organic, and you need to be able to adjust on an ongoing basis. Now, that's the old coach in me. You know, Mike Tyson, the famous uh, heavyweight boxer, said famously once, you know, everybody's got a plan till they get hit in the mouth. Well, same thing with sponsorship. You think things are going to go a certain way, and then they don't. Hey, that's okay. No time to panic. We'll make adjustments. And that's where planning sessions together can make that happen. And that's where constant tweaking of that plan can make that happen. I like to focus on solutions and not assets. Accomplishments versus contractual elements. It's about what they're going to do with the assets and not what the assets are all about. I'm also a big believer in a detailed recap report. Most people in the reports tell you all the good things. You know what? That's being a little dishonest. You should also say, here's where we struggled. Here's where we underperformed with suggestions how to make that better. 
And then finally, share the magic. Y'all, we're in the magic business. Corporate sponsorship is about reaching fans. It's about reaching fans on their terms. It's about adding joy to their experience. And so we should share the magic. You, the salesperson, should act like an agency. In fact, you should act like you're their agency. You're not supplanting the agencies they have, but you are another agency sitting at the table helping them through all of this. Now, I have a swimming pool at home. And one of the things that I know we have to do on a regular basis is we have to test the pool. We have to test the pool. Uh, we test it regularly for chemical balance. Um, we t- that testing creates feedback. I got to add chlorine or I got to add more water or I got to do this or I got to do that. Testing facilitates appropriate adjustments. So you need to do that. Again, there are three entities involved here. There's the property, there's the corporate sponsor, and there's the fan. The property needs to be transparent. They need to be collaborative. They need to be flexible. And yes, they need to be innovative. I also think they should be forward thinking. They should always be looking ahead to what other value they can bring to their sponsor. The corporate sponsor, on the other hand, needs to understand the difference between the contractual versus the conceptual and being able to adjust to both. Now, in many cases, we ask for category exclusivity. I think that makes sponsors lazy sometimes. They think they have it. They don't have to do anything with it. My friend at ESPN, Rob Temple, talks about not exclusivity, but dominance and clarity. That's better. That's where you have a real position with the property. The corporate sponsor also needs to be flexible. Um, Just because you've got it in writing doesn't mean we have to do it all the time. You should utilize only what you need and will use and return the unused assets. Those are fixed cost assets in many cases, like tickets or tables or hospitality that goes unused, but somebody paid for. Give them back. And the corporate sponsor needs to be a team player. Sometimes you need to support initiatives that are important to the property and are meaningless to you because good partners do good things for good partners. And finally, the fans. You got to make sure that the fans recognize and appreciate sponsors. You need to give them opportunities to embrace sponsors. Sponsor funding reduces costs and creates added value. Let your, your fans know what sponsors are doing. But then allow fans to participate in various feedback mechanisms. Get data from fans and find out what's working and find out what's not working. If you do all this, there's a strong chance of a renewal down the road. If you don't, there are two chances, slim and none. And Slim just left the building. Now, here's your Tuesday tip. You know, we're always looking for the next thing. The next sale. The next sponsor to lust after and covet. Well, last year, my son Ryan and I did a great interview with Bill Self, the legendary basketball coach at the University of Kansas. And in the course of the conversation, I asked Bill if he had grown up dreaming of being 
the coach at Kansas, and he laughed and said, not a chance. He said, in fact, I made the decision early on in my career to make the current job I have the very best job. I was never looking for the next job. I always felt like the job I had was the best job. And when you do that, then you're going to be successful long-term. So here's my tip for you today. Make your current sponsor your best sponsor and make them feel special. You know, I've been married for 35 years, and I work hard to make sure that my wife Charlotte knows she's special. And to do that, you've got to do things that you've got to be cognizant of, of trying to create unique, special occasions for her. Not just Valentine's, birthdays, and anniversaries, but other times during the year. Well, it's the same thing with your sponsors. As Stephen still sang so eloquently, if you can't be with the one you love... Love the one you're with. Our guest angler today is Dan Keats, head of corporate sponsorships for Allstate Insurance Company, located in Northbrook, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. You know, I I found out this recently from the Ken Burns country music special. For years, I would listen to a 50,000-watt AM station called WLS in Chicago. I remember as a child in the late 50s, early 60s, we didn't have a Major League Baseball team in Atlanta where I grew up, and I became a Chicago Whites fan listening to WLS. Well, I never knew what it stood for. Well, it stood for World's Largest Store because WLS was created by Sears and Roebuck, and Sears also created Allstate. Sears sold cars, and you needed to insure cars, so Sears created Allstate. But today, Allstate is an independent company and is a significant corporate sponsor. Dan is here today to talk about his professional journey and talk about what it means to be a corporate sponsor. Let's welcome Dan to The Bridge. Dan, welcome to From the Bridge. Hey, thanks. Great to be here, Rick. I know you played college football at Kenyon, uh, also uh, the home of uh, our good buddy Shaka Smart. Uh, You played college football, and then you uh, left, and you've had an amazing path uh, to where you are today at Allstate. Let's talk a little bit about the path that you started right when you got out of college. Well, yes, it's funny. Actually, a quick sidebar. Uh, Shaka was a sophomore when I was a senior, so we actually were on campus together for a couple of years. Um, it's funny. But, um, yeah, I, I played football. Kenyon got injured my junior year. And, um, you know, I obviously loved sports growing up, loved football, and uh, thought about going into coaching, saw the nomadic <laughs> lifestyle <laughs> of the coaches that were on our staff and you know, you know, for every, you know, Nick Saban, you know, who came up the ladder, there's, you know, 10, as you know, tens of thousands of others who were wandering nomads at different levels. And I, you know, um, I was very interested in the, um, business side of, of sports. And so it just so happened that, uh, one of my neighbors growing up in New Jersey was vice president at the New Jersey Nets at the time. And he actually went on to become the CEO of the Brooklyn Nets, uh, and that was Brett Yormark. And he gave me a chance to be his intern. 
while I was rehabbing for my first neck surgery. And that was sort of my first foray into the business and learning about sports and, and sports marketing. Yeah, you worked for one of the legendary guys, Brett Yarmark, in the industry. But, you know, speaking of coaching and not going into coaching, you know, this is the week that Willie Taggart got fired at Florida State and his parting gifts yep. were $17 million. My, my <laughs> wife's always saying, Rick, couldn't you have stayed in coaching long enough to get I fired? Uh, I know. So, yeah. I mean, uh, funny story, Charlie Weiss, who I think may, may have still gotten his last paycheck from Notre Dame, you know, uh, last year, the year before, whatever it was, he was actually um, coached our basketball and, and high school football teams a couple years before I got to there in New Jersey. So it's funny. But yeah, he, you know, you, you, you make it all the way up and then, you know, you're not good enough. You still got a nice, seems like a nice severance these days. So, well, it amazes you know. me. The athletic directors given these contracts today. I was one of my rants the other day. I said, I, I really don't understand when you have 44 ball games, why a coach gets a bonus for going to a ball game. If I'm an athletic director, I just tell him, if you don't go to a ball game, I'm going to fire you. I mean, come <laughs> right. on, give me a break. You're, that's, I think that's what you're supposed to do. I think right. we pay you two and a half million dollars right. to win games. Exactly. Uh, I so mean, it's, it's like, gotta, it seems like half the teams can get to a bowl game so decide which half you want to be in the half that's employed or the half that's not going to be employed. exactly it's that way but anyway so you go to work with brett as his intern and i, I gotta believe you know he's a guy that um one of the most innovative guys but maybe the hardest working guy i know too um, well it, both it was a combination of both i mean when you I mean, literally, I, I tried to keep up with them. You know, I, I remember trying to get into the office at like six and think I was like, I am Mr. Go-Getter. He'd been there for like two hours. So, <laughs> it, you know, and, and he was there till eight, nine at night. Well, you know, and then, of course we had game nights. He'd be there later. Um, and, you, you know, it, it, he, you just learn that work ethic. And not like that, but working, marketing for the New Jersey Nets, and this is the mid-1990s. This is not the beautiful new Barclays center, Brooklyn nets. Now this was the New Jersey nets. This was the Derek Coleman years. This was the, you know, arm and Gilliam years. This was the, you know, this was the lean years of the nets when we were maybe getting seven, 8,000 in the building on a given night. And, you know, you have to be innovative to market. I mean, we had nine sports teams in the uh, Metro, you know, New York, tri-state area and you had the New York Giants, you had the Jets, you had NFL, you had Yankees, you had the Rangers, you had the Knicks and the Nets were at the bottom of the barrel. And he um, just not only outworked people, but outthought people, learned about, you know, how to innovatively market, you know, different branding opportunities, different ways to, um, you know, get brands in front of customers and newer experiential ways. Because at the time we were, you're buying signage, you can buy media, you, you get your tickets and hospitality. It's very vanilla stuff. He was really doing, you know, the different things with, um, you know, player appearances and retail outlets and um, different promotions on the court and things like that. Really, and you had to market with the Nets, you had to. And he really came up with some innovative promotions and concepts that, you know, was pretty much you know, table stakes for most of the professional sports teams these days. Well, it's the old line, necessity is the mother of invention. And, uh, you know, he knew he had to do – he had to zig when everybody else was zagging because there wasn't going to be any money in zagging for the Nets. So (laughs) (laughs) kind of an interesting thing. So then where would you go? So then I went to – you know, as much as I, you know, appreciated love working with Brett, I mean, I was like, I've got to – 
I was trying to think beyond my, you know, football is my passion. I'm like, do I want to sit here and, you know, market the lowest ranked team in the New York metropolitan market? And uh, there was a firm across the street, almost literally from the Nets in East Rutherford called Integrated Sports International that was run by Frank Bruno, Fred Freed, and Steve Rosner. And they were um, doing a lot of marketing for uh, NFL players. They had just opened up a golf division. They were just getting to the team and venue services. They're involved in naming rights. And I just thought that could offer me a whole, you know, a wider picture into um, the sports world, which it did. I mean, it was, it was incredible. Those guys were, you know, very similar, you know, mindset and philosophy that Brett had. I mean, hard workers, entrepreneurial, you know, working seven days a week, um, you know, we'd be in there with a group of us Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoons. We have TVs on watching sports. It was just a whole cultural thing. And, um, but the grinding, you know, really grinding, hustling, learning, you know, how deals are put together on personal service agreements and uh, working with athletes. And, you know, they had some great clients. They had, you know, all of at that time, Lee Steinberg's clients, they had folks like, you know, Steve Young and Boomer Sison and Phil Sims and Howie Long and, you know, these, these were great people to, you know, work on and, and help represent. So it was a great experience. Well, they were also – all three of those guys I would consider to be legendary figures in our business. Um, yeah. Each with it, their own set of skills. But you had to learn a whole lot from those guys. Yeah, I learned a, a ton from, from, from them. I had uh, another person, EJ Narcisse, who, you know, was sort of um, – you know, from the team and venue aspect and he'd work with the Redskins and really had to help teams maximize their revenue. Uh, so it was really a, a whole conglomerate of, you know, opportunities. There, there was a ton of um, things to learn if you could so desire. I tried to be as, I mean, my thing was, what could I do every day to maximize my learning? I could go over to the athlete division, help work on athlete deals. I could, you know, work with, you know, EJ or Fred on some of the team and venue stuff you know, whoever needed help grinding or making calls or learn. I mean, I was just trying to, you know, soak up as much as I could um, and, and maximize my time there because it was, um, I, I knew that there were some great things that, you know, you could work on. And when you work with, you know, some of the teams we had, I mean, we were consulting with Cleveland Browns when they, you know, came back as a franchise in the late nineties, you know, you know, people would answer your calls, especially in Ohio. Um, you learned that, um, you know, what things really motivated businesses and consumers in, in various markets across the country. I'm constantly talking to young people and telling them early in your career, especially take the experience over the money Absolutely. because the big money will come the more experienced you are. And the fact that I, I see a lot of people get so pigeonholed, especially in the agency world where they're good at one thing. And so they just consistently repeat that same skill set to the point that, that they really don't have any place to go because they haven't learned anything new, but, but, but that didn't happen to you. So then you leave those guys. Yeah. So I, I, then I, I got an opportunity. General Motors was restructuring uh, 1999 and they were bringing all of their sponsorship um, work in house, so to speak with an agency called General Motors R works. And you know, I had been selling to companies. I had been at the Nets and been, you know, obviously with with at, at ISI. Um, ISI got bought by Clear Channel. And so I just thought it was the right time. And there was just a ton of, the, the whole business was exploding in the late 90s, as you know. And um, I really felt like I wanted to, 
you know, where my personality was suited. I wanted to sort of be that riverboat guide on the corporate side, helping, you know, navigate because there's a lot of money being spent. And I didn't, so I think it was always being spent, uh, you know, when I was on the sales, I was like, yes, great. Spend more money here. But I was like, I wouldn't spend that kind of money for that opportunity if I was on that side. And I always wondered what it would be like if you had somebody who sort of knew a little bit on the sales side, what was going on um, and then go over to the corporate side. And so it just, you know, happened that I, you know, GM was restructuring and they had some, you know, an opening in their Chicago office and uh, off I went to Chicago to work for General Motors Artworks. And I was there for eight years working in, um, you know, five of it in the field, both in Chicago and in Dallas, you know, in both um, field jobs, I had a 12 state territory with dealers working on Pontiac Buick GMC and, you know, trying to, you know, get the dealers and to maximize and leverage whether it was the NCAA or it was the local farm show. I mean, you also learn to get beyond sports and find out what motivates people in Dallas. I probably had one sports deal, but I was doing stock shows, rodeos, hunting expos, things that I was like, what am I guy from Jersey? I'm doing a hunting expo in, in Dallas, but you, you know, marketing is marketing. You learn um, what things motivate different people. And while sports was a big one, there were other things that got people excited as well. And, and um, you know, uh, especially in Texas, working for General Motors, the, the truck market was uber competitive. And so there was a fight to get in front of consumers at the rodeos and the stock show. So, you know, it's a, it a big deal. Again, another opportunity to learn, opportunity to learn what things motivated people at the local level beyond sports. And so when I moved back to Detroit in 2004 to kind of head up uh, the National Sports Entertainment Alliance position at General Motors Artworks, I kind of had this you know, nice experience of things that I knew would drive results at the local level and how to get that done and take national property like a Final Four or an NCAA or Major League Baseball and and drive that to the local level and, and move metal for General Motors. It's interesting. You you talk about trucks and, and Texas. We we have a client, Warner Ladder, and several years ago, they bought a, a truck box company called WeatherGuard. And of course, all their senior management was up in Connecticut, and they said, well, what right. should we do? And I, I reminded them that I've never seen anybody buy a truck box without a truck. Let's start right. with that. <laughs> and that was right. – they, 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 I don't think they'd thought of that. And, and then I reminded them that I think about 68% of all – Trucks in America are sold in two states, in Texas and Oklahoma. Right. So yes. you, you better figure out those states in a hurry. Right. And, and, and the mindset between Texas and Oklahoma and the mindset in Connecticut were a little, little different. A little um, different. Yeah. And so we, we got them involved in rodeo. When you were at, uh, at our works, was, was Mark Lenave there at the time? Yes. Yeah. Mark Lenave was there. And Mark Rose, he was, came back. He had been away. He became the head of uh, Cadillac. Uh, when I was there and then he became, you know, Rick Wagner, who was CEO of GM, his number two guy, you know, executive VP. Um, and because, um, again, kind of took a liking to me because of one of my previous mentors, Steve Rosner, integrated sports international had a great relationship with Mark and had talked me up. And again, you know, to the whole, you know, keep relationships strong wherever you go. Um, that was, um, that helped me. And so, you know, all of the things that General Motors was doing, I kind of became the guy who would put the deals together and, you know, made sure Super Bowl ran smoothly, made sure MLB All-Star game, made sure all of a sudden. So, you know, Mark just sort of knew like, all right, 
Keats was involved, he was sort of the guy. And as long as I was involved somewhere, somehow things were going to go well. And that became sort of my reputation. Um, and I left GM in um, 2007 uh, to work for an agency called The Marketing Arm, working on the State Farm account. So probably 2007, insurance at that time was just starting to become a huge category. And nobody really thought too much. At that time, it was, you know, beer, soft drink, automobile, bank were sort of the, 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 the big four or five categories. And insurance was sort of an afterthought. But, you know, right on the cusp of, you know, the insurance category blowing up and State Farm was doing all of the things that General Motors was or wanting to get into those things. So I helped them navigate those waters. And then it's funny, Mark Lenave got hired at Allstate and um, was here in Chicago and we connected. And, you know, he always, he said, hey, would you ever come work on my team directly? I said, you know, if you get something that's interesting, let me know. And he, he, he called me one day and said, I may have opening on the sponsorship team, handling all the college football and college stuff. And I was like, tell me when, you know, it was great. And, you know, I, I think the, the movement at the time, I could see that, you know, more of the things that I had been doing as at the agency level were sort of moving in-house in a lot of brands like State Farm or Allstate in terms of making decisions, evaluating, you know, it, it as it should be because they were becoming bigger and bigger initiatives in these brands marketing departments and so um you know i i kind of took all of my agency chips and all of the work that i'd done for 16 17 years before and said okay this is where i'm i'm going i'm going to cash them all in to be the client at Allstate. and um but it was I, you know in talking to pam here and the folks it was a very agency-like mentality because we were everyone was rolling up their sleeves getting their hands dirty this wasn't your typical clients and I don't think their clients are like that now but at the time a lot of America's guests you know that was their position they just wanted to show up and throw out the first pitch get the seats on the 50 yard line look good shake the hands and and done you know and as long as their agency was handling it and they you know were made sure that the company was in the right position that was their job but I think that's morphed now into you know the clients got to do the heavy lifting and do a lot of the the digging and um, you know, so I was, I was suited for that. And I prefer that, frankly, I don't need somebody, you know, that was the the thing that I told my agency partners when I got the job was that, you know, I'm your biggest friend and ally, but I'm also, I know you can't BS me because I've been on your side. So, um, you know, I am able to make that phone call just as well as you can and let's support each other so that we're, you know, we can be a really powerful team here, but, you know, if it's not moving fast enough, I will pick up the phone and make the call because that's what I like to do. So it's kind of, it's been a nice evolution. And then I've been in Allstate here for eight years now as of, as of Friday. <laughs> well, the money, you know, the money's gotten ridiculous. I mean, it's, yeah. it, you know, and so with that comes a, a, a whole different set of of accountabilities and responsibilities sure. for that. I want to, before we get into the the, the nuts and bolts of your football, your college football program. Tell me, why does college football work so well for Allstate? Well, I think it's it works well on a couple of levels. One, um, you know, college football is a very, you know, it's a national platform, and you can watch turn on TV on Saturday and watch it, but it's also, um, you know, a couple of reasons. It's local at its heart. You know, it's local in Columbus, Ohio, and um, Austin, Texas, and um, Athens, Georgia, 
and our agents are local. And so we're doing business through our agents and, and it's, it's a part of the fabric of the community college football. Uh, it's also um, who our target consumer is. These are alumni, um, huge passionate fan base that, you know, goes back generations and, you know, your parents were, you know, you go to school, your parents and they went to the school that their parents went to. And so you've got multiple generations of fans that are passionate, that are entrenched. Um, you don't have to worry about any labor <laughs> strikes or any issues like that that you run into in professional sports. And I think that fans have just connected with, you know, the passion that everyone plays with. It's, it's, I think people see the money that's in professional sports and what the athletes are making. They see, well, <laughs> until last week, of course, but, um, that the, you know, the college kids are, you know, they're playing, obviously they're getting scholarships, but they're playing for the team and they're playing for the love of the game. And I think that, you know, everything is developed in terms of the evolution of the game and the types of, you know, offenses that are being run and the sophistication of it that can be handled at the collegiate level. Um, you know, the good old days of the wishbone offense was as much as, you know, if you're a diehard, you love that, but you know, the run pass option, the passing, it's, it's exciting football. And you see the NFL adopting the types of, you know, um, plays and formations that, that they run in college now. So I think that, um, you know, and, and, and you can get behind it, whether you grew up in the area or you went to school there, you, you know, it's just the passion and the community aspect of college football is, is huge. Well, you saw this week, the Patriots go down for the first time and, and, and they got beat by what I call the consummate college quarterback, Lamar Jackson, right. who, who brings just that, that whole different, you know, way of, of attacking defenses. You just don't know what he's exactly. going to do. He's going to run the football. No. He's going to throw the football. He's going to do some things. And, right. and I think you're seeing more of that in there. Dan, I've told everybody repeatedly that I, I believe your college football program is the best model of integrated sports marketing of any I've ever seen. And I think that's a tribute to you and to Pam and to others that came before you. I mean, you have – here you are. You're in a CFP official. You're the title sponsor of the Sugar Bowl. You have the Southeastern Conference and the SEC Network. You have school deals with the field goal nets that is so innovative by itself. You run a mobile tour that travels to campuses. You have a monster PR platform with the Allstate AFCA GoodWorks team. Through that, you do service projects in the community – and then you integrate it all in your media with the mayhem co- cohesively. Well, I think that, you know, we, we, you, we talked about why it's important to be there because we've identified college football as the right audience to um, market our products and services to. But I think the key, and I, I tell this to the senior leadership here, uh, um, that we've been lucky to have, you know, uh, ownership and equity. We've had a unique opportunity with our NETS program to sort of establish, you know, that, that, um, ownership and, and equity in terms of, you have to stick with it. Uh, especially when I was at, you know, state farm and other places I've seen different brands, they jump in, they jump out and look, I get it. Budgets change, new executives come in, different objectives, different, um, circumstances. And so, you know, a lot of times brands aren't able to maintain the track they're on. Sponsorship, I think, to be as effective as you can be is you have to stay in and build over time. The first year is all you're going to do is, is, is learn, maybe even year two. Um, and by year three, you start to really 
you know, get it going. And by that time, in most, a lot of cases, you're renewing a new contract or whatever. So um, I think you have to have the discipline and the commitment to stay in for the long term. If it's the right place to be, you might learn that hey, it's not the right place to be fine, get out. But when you get a platform like college football that you know is the right audience, you know it's the right place to be. And how do you continue to build equity year over year? You know, you got to make sure that you're proving the results out. You're building programs that are going to deliver results. That means I can ask for more money and build more budgets year over year. Um, but but you, even if you, you know, in years we're flat, you know, what things do we trim? Or it's like, it's like maintaining a yard, right? What things are we pruning or trimming that we can maintain the overall look and feel of what we have um, and what we've built. But the number one thing is you have to stay in over time. That's one thing that I, I, when I interviewed with Pam, I came in and I said, my impression is you guys sort of, you're not in a lot of places. You know, we're not in a ton of things. Um, we're in very few platforms. College football being the biggest one. Um, we know who we are. We know who we're talking to. And we stay in for the long term. A lot of people talk about bigger, fewer, better. But you have to also have the commitment to build and develop and continue to push that equity year over year so that it um, you're continuing to enhance that connectivity with the consumer. You can't do it if you're jumping in and jumping out year over year. No, I think time in the market is so critical. You uh, you kind of opened up that can of worms a few minutes ago about the changes in college athletics with the name, image, and likeness right. issue that's come up. It's interesting. I think y'all have done as good a job as anybody in what I call the appropriate and legal utilization of student-athletes with the Allstate AFCA Goodworks team um, that I think is going to be a model for other people to look at um, if if we do indeed have the ability to – to utilize college student athletes um, commercially um, in a way. Um, let's talk about that for a minute. What's your let's take your all-state hat off. Take put your right. athlete hat back on. <laughs> you, you you played college football. Uh, right. You got hurt playing college yes. football. Um, let, let's talk about that a little bit. Well, it's kind of a couple couple thoughts in my mind. Um, I joked, I said, you know, I, I did a, me and my fellow friends, we did a, we did a, like a little photo shoot for the quality farm and fleet in Mount Vernon, Ohio. I think when we were <laughs> juniors or sophomores in college, I'm like, I never got paid for that stuff. It was just a fun thing we did. And they had fun and we had fun. And I think we got a 20% coupon at the end or something. I don't know. I mean, we were division three. So it was, everything was sort of not really, uh, you know, uh, tracked the way it probably should. But, you know, and I said, when, when am I getting my back pay for that? for that photo shoot. But, um, I, I think that, you know, I get it, you know, um, the athletes are, you know, part of this, you know, process, this machine that's making universities and schools and millions and millions of dollars. And I understand that. Um, I also understand that, you know, the college scholarship, I'm sort of a more on the probably the traditionalist side, that the scholarship should stand for something. And, but I think, you know, that what they've tried to do in recent years, the full cost of, you know, the experience, whether that's a stipend, whether that's additional stuff for food and how, you know, you know, things like laundry, stuff like that. Yeah. I think that should be incorporated. The name and likeness starts to get tricky because yeah. Uh, for the stuff that we do that Allstate does with the Allstate AFC good works team, I think is, is great. We can only go up to a certain point, you know, we'd like to go further um, we have to use the AFCA as sort of a shield for us, um, and we have to sort of make sure everybody has the same amount of equity and everybody's treated the same. We use the AFCA as sort of like, hey, it's their program, and we're the sponsor. 
so that we don't hurt a student athlete's eligibility. But, you know, I was actually on the phone with Greg Sankey late last week saying, you know, there's SEC kids every year on the Good Works team. I know it's a big priority for you as it is for us. And you love the program. And obviously we love the program. And I don't know what, what if we, you know, put our heads together and get to the forefront of this and maybe become a leader and saying, how can we advance this name and likeness opportunity? Maybe the Good Works team is a great example to go do that. You know, how can we highlight these student athletes in a way that, you know, maybe the, the, the funds that we're giving them can be put towards the foundations that they're starting or running or that can be used and to enhance the community projects that they're working on. I mean, that's, I think, what everyone would hold up as a best in class model for how to, you know, utilize funds for an athlete's name and likeness. Well, it's interesting, I mean, you know, the, the beer category has suddenly become vogue at the collegiate level and the, right. the beer companies that I'm talking to, I'm telling them, quit thinking that you're an ATM machine and start thinking like an investment banker. It's right. the same money. It's a different mindset. And I think what your conversation was with Greg Sankey about the same way, how do we not just be writing a check, but how do we right. facilitate, you know, what I think would be positive changes versus exploitative changes right. um, in a way. And I think it's a different mindset. And I, I congratulate you guys for thinking a little bit outside the box about, you know, how do we figure out a way to legitimize uh, the name, image, and likeness um, situation. I, I worry that young people, you know, part of the, the collegiate experience is, is an educational experience. You're, you're dealing right. with a lot of young people that, that make mistakes. And, right. you know, today, obviously, with social media and a smartphone, you, your mistakes <laughs> may, right. may, may be there forever. But, exactly. I, but I'm hoping someone is going to advise student athletes in a way that start thinking about your long-term career in ways that, that, that you might can, can not only monetize a short-term window, but begin to develop some skills and some relationships for a longer period of time, um, you know, because the, your athletic careers, even if you go on to play professional sports, is very, very fleeting. And and the ability to uh, uh, to develop relationships and, and do some things. But I just worry so much about, you know, the negatives, too, being, you know, what's going to stop a booster from saying, you know, if yeah. you sign with my school, I'm going to write you a check for $100,000 every year to be in my commercials. Yeah. Secondly, all that stuff yeah, that they yeah. talk, you know, the movie blue chips and all those yeah, things that they, yeah. you know, were, were seen as like, you know, fan fantasy type of scenarios are actually going to become reality. Sometimes they like, don't want $30,000 in cash. Or I want a hundred thousand cash. And how are you not going to stop that? Or how are you going to um, prevent that? I mean, it's going to be a lot of, uh, I tell you what, if, if anybody, if you have young law students that want to really build a career, um, work with in and around this type of situation with the NCAA because there's the litigation and the, the the cases that are going to come forward to try to you know put parameters and guardrails on this are going to be endless. I think you know with this Pandora's box being opened. Well, the other unintended consequence is you know here you got a hotshot quarterback and he's getting all kinds of things and and one right. day the offensive linemen say you know I think we won't block for him this yeah, week exactly. <laughs> You know. <laughs> no, if I'm the quarterback, my first deal is with my lineman. I'm yeah, the exactly. Lineman in the deal and then, you know, go from there. But, uh, yeah, I don't know how you're, you know, 
Because there's ideas like that we have with the Good Works team that I think are what it is intended to do and be about. But then how do you not, how do you control that uh, to where to your side, to the darker side of what it's going to or could bring up? How do you prevent that? It's, it's impossible. Well, the rule book has gotten so thick because people cheat. I mean, right. you know, it'd be very simple. You'd have a very small rule book, do the right thing. But, right. you know, every time it's like, okay, you can have a calendar, but now you can't have it before color because, right. I mean, it just gets a little bit out of control. So it's going to be very fascinating to watch right. that. Um, I want to ask you another, switching gears, you, you, you know, because you've done so many things and you had such a great road map, I think, for a successful career. I got a lot of young people that are listening. Um, one of the things we've done a really good job on the podcast is getting it to the professors at a lot of the universities that have sports management and sports administration programs. Give me some advice uh, or give the young people out there some advice for how to build a career. Well, I would say, you know, the two things I would say are the two H's, humble and hungry. Be humble, be hungry, and like we talked about earlier, do not be afraid to roll up your sleeves. And everybody thinks, okay, I need to be making 60 grand coming out of college or 50 grand, whatever it is, go for the experience, be humble, be hungry, make yourself an asset and a, and a, uh, a reference, you know, from day one to where they're like, oh, we got to give him more projects or her more projects or, you know, where's so-and-so on this, on this opportunity, you know, make it so that, you know, if, if, when it's time to make that jump, it's going to be a loss, you know, for that organization. Because, you know, yes, yeah, you build your career, you want to be taking on new experiences. And I think it's rare in our industry that everybody stays at the same job from day one all the way through the end. Um, but, you know, your work will stand for itself. Your reputation will stand for itself. Your attitude and how you approach things will stand for itself. And the right people um, will notice that. And that's how you will build, you know, and, and never burn a bridge, never burn a bridge, stay connected to people. But at the end of the day, you know, keep the ego way down and the work ethic way up and that's, you'll find success. Well, that's a great way to end today. Listen, I can't thank you enough for uh, number one, what you do for college athletics, y'all do it the right way. Um, it is the model of an integrated program. And, and, you know, I've always said the speed of the ship's determined by the speed of the captain. And you've been a great captain for Allstate and a great role model for a lot of people in the industry. And I appreciate you being with us today from the bridge. You got it, Rick. Thank you. Now it's time for On the Road with Rick. Well, today's another one of my favorite old school spots in San Francisco, and that's the Tatish Grill. The Tatish Grill actually was started in 1849, and if you remember, that was the year of the famous gold rush, and three immigrants from Croatia started grilling fish and selling coffee to the miners and the merchants that were servicing the miners. Later in 1887, another Croatian by the name of John Tadish joined them as a cook. And then he bought the restaurant and changed the name to the Tadish Grill. 
Today, it's located at 240 California Street in downtown San Francisco, and it's been in that location since 1967. Now, they have a lot of my favorites there. Uh, They have a thing called Crab Louie. It's an amazing dish with an amazing Louie dressing. They have Dungeness Crab Cakes. They have amazing chiapino. Chiapino is a Portuguese seafood stew that's amazing. But my very favorite dish among a lot of favorites are the pan-fried sand dabs. Sand dabs are actually small Pacific flounders, and they serve them pan-fried in a lemon butter sauce and they are simply amazing. I like to not eat at a table. I like to eat at the counter because you can talk to the staff that are shucking oysters, preparing the clam chowder, doing a variety of things. And many of those staff members have been there for years and years and years. Next time you find yourself in San Francisco, make sure you visit the Tatus Grill. Man, I'm getting hungry. Well, that's our show for today. I need to go find some food. We'll see you next week from the bridge. This has been your captain, Rick Jones, from the bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. What they want me to be. Trouble's